on a series called Cross. Our premise is a few things here. The, 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 without the cross, the resurrection has no meaning. That's what we're trying to get to. I hear songs, you know, he came out of the grave, and he came out of the grave, and, and, that, and that's an incredible, but if you don't tie it to the cross, it's lost a little bit of its umph and its sting of how significant that is. Jesus wasn't raised for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. He was, he was raised to validate that his death was effective, that his death was accepted. It's the cross that defeats Satan, not the resurrection. It's the cross we're, we're going to talk about next week on Easter. Join to the confirmation and validation of the, of the resurrection. They're, they're always preached together. But it's the cross that strips Satan. It's the cross that he humiliated him. It's the cross that basically took his fangs out. And I know those are a lot of spiritual terms on, on, on how they mean practically, but it's, it's the cross that destroyed his influence over our life. So this is why I'm so much getting back into the cross because I almost think it's getting to be a little bit, in some ways, uh, it can get de-emphasized, and yet it's the centerpiece of Christianity. So I want to I talk today on four images of the cross, and as we reflect on them at the end, you know, your, your altar call is to reflect upon these four images, is to, uh, we're going to have communion, and I want you to be reflecting on the four things that I'm going I'm to give you today. Uh, and, I, and I use the word images and not concepts or doctrines, because the, really the Bible is a book of images or a book of pictures. The Bible illustrates spiritual truth through real-life examples. They give us pictures of things, um, pictures of slavery with master, pictures of shepherd with sheep, pictures of Jesus in the parables, real-life examples of life that we could grasp a, a, a truth spiritually by the natural things that we could touch. So I like the, the word images or pictures better than theories and concepts and precepts, doctrines, and those types of things because God gave us pictures to grasp, you know, spiritual understanding. And, and, and our salvation, let's just let me talk about our salvation. The Bible calls it our great salvation. Our great salvation can't be really defined by one term. You know, you have some people who, who would say something like this, we're a, we're a grace church. Well, we're a faith church. Or we're a this adjective church. Or we, we really, or in our church, we're really into the goodness of God. Well, God is incredibly good, and we should be absolutely floored by the goodness of God. But God's goodness is not the only thing he's about. He's about some other things. If he's reading Leonard Ravenhill right now, he'll tell you that God's about some other things besides just his goodness. Okay? And so what happens in that, we, we kind of limit the expression of the full nature of God. You know, he's not just, you know, my wife, you can say my wife's a very socially gracious person, and she absolutely is, okay? But there's a lot more to Sue than just her social graciousness. So we tend to just, even with each other, we kind of mark ourselves in one thing. We're complex. God's complex, and he has a full nature. Our salvation is complex and all that Jesus purchased for us. So we just can't camp on one particular term. So I like to say we try to be a Bible church, okay? We try to be a Bible church and emphasize all the things. That, uh, 
God is and all the truths about our salvation. So I'm going to read four sections of Scripture. Each section of Scripture here has one of the pictures I want to talk about tonight. Are you with me here? The first is 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, unfortunately we do get tripped up sometimes, don't we? Two things take place here. One, we don't live a lifestyle of sin as believers. The other thing is that it may be that we might sin, okay, because we haven't completely arrived yet. But, but he goes on, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, the advocate speaks that someone's representing to, some, to someone else who may be displeased with us or someone that we have maybe transgressed their, their law. <clears throat> and so he's, he's defending us. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And here's the word I want you to focus in on here. It's a fancy five-syllable word. He is the propitiation. There's a propitiation. I know we don't use that word in our modern vocabulary. Everyone say that with me, propitiation. Propitiation. And uh, why did you use that word? Because it's actually, when you start looking at the definition of this in the Greek and everything else, it's actually the best word to describe it, even though it's not a word normally used. But if you look at places like the New King James Version, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, and the Authorized Standard Version, they all use this particular word. And I'm gonna, there is a movement in an element of theology trying to say, well, we don't like that term, we're trying to change it, but we can't, we can't change what the Bible, what the Bible de declares. And you'll, you'll understand what the issue is when I get into this in a second. But he goes, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The second verse is Romans chapter 3, 23 to 24. We know the first part, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because we all memorize that because we all need Jesus, don't we? Okay. And are just, but, but here's another place, and are justified by his grace as a gift. And here's the second word, the second picture, the second image. <coughs> Through the redemption, redemption is my second image here, that is in Christ Jesus. And, uh, of course, our salvation, it comes as a grace, as a gift, and it's free to us. But uh, it comes to a thing called redemption. And we'll talk about what that picture is. The third verse is this, Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 24, verse 8. And are justified. Everyone say Justified. Justified by his grace as a gift. Now, I like justified. Sounds like it's just such a cool word. You can make a rock band, you know, like, you know, justified. Have you, go, you, go to the, you go to a justified concert, it just has that kind of a tenor to it, you know, justified sons, you know. We could have, you, have, you can come up with all sorts of great titles, you know, with justified. It's, it's cool. But this is another picture. It's a picture of a courtroom that we'll get into in a second. Justified. And the third and the fourth image is this in Romans chapter 5. And verse 10. For while we were enemies, it's hard for us to see that we were actually enemies to God. We were reconciled to God. And the term reconciled is what I want to bring to your attention. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is what God really is ultimately after. He's not ultimately after that you be cleansed from your sins. He's not ultimately after that you would be declared something legally. What he's after is you. You know, if I, um, if Sue and I, God forbid, had a separation because I was behaving poorly, 
and uh, I repented, and I, and, I, and I sought her forgiveness. And she said, Bob, I forgive you. But I stayed separated from her. That's, that's, there's something wrong there. Bob, I've forgiven you. I know. I'm just going to stay over here, and you're going to stay over there. But I've forgiven you. And I know, and I'm talking to everybody how you've forgiven me and how that, what that's done. But the purpose of the forgiveness was not just the forgiveness. The purpose of the forgiveness is so that we can be unified again in a relationship. And so we, if we don't understand reconciliation, we don't understand the whole heart of what this is all about. So good. He came after you. Yeah. He came after me. So our four images, let's look at them. Here we go. The image of propitiation. That, that image and that picture is a, really a picture of a temple or a shrine where something is offered. And we'll, we'll get into this. The image of redemption is actually a picture of commerce, the marketplace where something is paid. The image of justification is the picture of a court where something is declared, a status is declared. And the image of reconciliation is a picture of family and relationship, which would be the ultimate heart of what Jesus and God is all about. All right, so let's get into this nice word, propitiation, this nice five-syllable word. I've got a little tagline here. Does God have anger issues? Now, why, why is this... Uh, term propitiation such a um, has a negative connotation that people don't like it. The actual word means to appease or to satisfy someone's anger. That's what it means. That means Rick is really furious and I, I, I do something to ease and appease that anger to remove it from our relationship. It's called propitiation. Okay, and so I want to make sure he's no longer angry with me. Now, why this is negative, because people don't like the angry God context. You know, Ben does a lot of witnessing, and, and uh, he runs into this all the time. The response, our whole Explain That series, really has a lot to do with this. Say, come on, I don't like to, I want to serve an angry God. I, you know, it's kind of the grouchy God that kind of flies off the handle. And, and uh, all of a sudden, God, you know, I'm, I'm in a bad mood today, so I'm going to nuke, you know, Bulgaria. And I'm in a bad mood. I'm going to bring an earthquake on South America because, you know, I'm really upset today. And they kind of look at this word propitiation as being pagan, where you take ancient, you know, indigenous cultures, and they were, you know, we want to change the weather. The weather's bad, so we're going to offer up a maiden, okay, to, to God to make propitiation. So God will change the weather. So he'll bring the harvest and because the gods are angry with us. And people... People look at this, all Christianity is, is, is the same thing. Well, first, when we think of anger, we think of us. We get, we get angry because we're vain. You know, I, you know, I have to look at my anger, and I'm kind of honoring, and, and, and Sue will tell you that. Sometimes it's because I'm misunderstood. I need to be understood. I feel falsely accused. I can't be falsely accused. Well, I can be falsely accused. Just be falsely accused. We're trying to defend an, an image. We're trying to defend an agenda. We have a block goal. Okay, that's, that's why we ha have anger. And so we transfer that human type of anger onto God. Here, here's what God's anger about. God, God has anger. But God is angry about evil. That's what he's angry about. He's provoked by evil. He hates evil. And he's moved in great anger against it. And we should be too. 
we should be angry too. It's kind of funny. I don't know why I'm bringing this out. I just watched this this movie on Netflix called The Highwaymen with Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson about the, about the two ex-Texas Rangers that basically hunted down Bonnie and Clyde. And, uh, and what was interesting about it is that there was this indignation in these guys of the people that they were, they were murdering, the innocent blood they were shedding. And they made a statement, they're no longer human. You know, this, in other words, they were driven by this hatred towards evil. And we kind of lost that a little bit in our society because we're not provoked by evil. We're familiar with evil. We dance with evil. We play with evil. We, we adjust to evil. So we don't see evil. We don't see how this would destroy this person and how this would bring a horrible negative effect upon all these people and what they're doing is evil. But God does, and he hates it. Here's the other thing different about Christianity versus paganism. God does not ask us to do anything to satisfy his anger. He hasn't asked us to do anything. So when, he, when it doesn't say Bob McGregor is the propitiation for our sins. It says our advocate, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who satisfied his own wrath. So God stepped to the plate in his own goodness and his own mercy and said, I will satisfy my own anger against evil and I will put this aside. Why? Because he's a God of grace and he's a God of mercy. But without propitiation, we can't have the other three pictures, which we'll get into right now. This has to happen first. The anger has to be removed for the rest of the picture to, be, uh, to take place, which brings us in to our second term, redemption. Redemption comes with a few little things. It means to be rescued. Rescued from what? At what price? And to whom was it paid? So this particular word, uh, redemption, means actually to pay a ransom price. If you go to the original Greek, the root of it means uh, it means to be ransomed. It means that I'm free because someone paid a ransom. Jesus said this in Matthew 20, 28. He says, I didn't come to serve or excuse me, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom to pay the price for your freedom for many. That's what he said. And uh, now this term is not talking about us satisfying God. This term is actually describing, really, our condition as sinners. And the Old Testament is, a, is, a, is, is basically a 39-book story of God constantly having to free his people from stuff. He had to free them, like in, the, in Egypt, he had to free them from slavery. He had to free them from debt. That's why we have Jubilee and the forgiving of debts every seven years. And you know, you weren't even allowed to own perpetually property of another, another Jewish brother, okay, because eventually those, his property had to be returned to him. He, he was redeemed. Those properties were redeemed. The, you redeemed your firstborn. Your firstborn son belonged to, to God, but I'll do it by offering God. I paid a redemption price. So this word of, of ransoming and, and redeeming and delivering is, is a lot of material stuff all through the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it switches because it's more of a moral ransom. It's a moral deliverance, something that we are, that we are involved in. 
We are bound as slaves. And this is the image here. The image here is that we are ransomed out of slavery to two things that people are bound to. They're bound to guilt and they're bound to sin. And there's two reasons why this church isn't packed out tonight. Either people are suffering shame because they don't believe they belong here and it keeps them out of the presence of God. Or they're, they're bound to a selfish, sinful, rebellious agenda. It's, it could be sophisticated. It could be coded with a, you know, a beautiful personality, but it's still, I'm doing my own thing. Okay? Or sometimes it's a combination of both. But, but what people think, they think that it's all just them. Where Satan is the accuser of the brethren, he is holding them in condemnation. And they are, they are slaves to his agenda. John says the whole world lies under the influence of the wicked one. Of course, there's a whole middle world of deception and warfare where people are blinded in their concepts from the gospel of Jesus Christ, held slaves to Jesus, um, held slaves, excuse me, to Satan. And of course, Jesus comes to pay a ransom price. Now, who is God paying this ransom price to? Is he paying it to Satan? Well, no. Satan has no power. God set the ransom price. He says, the soul that sins, that soul must die. So the, I have a ransom price called death that only I can pay. I set it, and I will pay it to myself to satisfy it. And that comes by the blood of Jesus. So why the blood of Jesus? Why not the lethal injection of Jesus? Why blood? We have blood on the cross up here. Because blood, in biblical times, was the witness of death. That a physical death took place. And if death was the price, because the soul that sinned must die, then blood is the testimony and the witness that death took place. And so I set the ransom price, and I stepped to the plate, and I paid the ransom price to free everyone from guilt and, uh, and shame from the agenda of sin. Well, how does he break us from sin? Just by what he did on the cross? Because now he can enter into your life, my life, and we don't live by our own power, but we live by his power. Amen? Amen. Jesus is doing a work in me, and he's doing a work in you. Christians make horrible sinners. We had one brother one time, he decided to go out and do a day of evil. It's a true story. I'm just going to go out and do evil things. He was in a horrible place. He lasted about half a day. <laughs> he just, you know, he tried to do evil things, and he just kind of, after a while, he just said, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing? <laughs> his, evil, his evil day didn't last, you know, more than like six hours, okay? He kind of came home. But uh, we, we just don't make good sense because we have someone else working in us in a powerful way. Grace is a very, very powerful thing. It's God in me, working in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. And, and you know, people ask me, do you think someone who's a, a Christian can fall away to apostatize? I, I, I think it can. But I've been teaching the book of Hebrews, as you well know. And uh, you can, anybody can jump into the class on Wednesday night. We'll be teaching this Wednesday night. And we were dealing with Hebrews chapter 6, where it deals with if they fall away to renew them to repentance after they've tasted all these things. And it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews says, but I believe better things for you. So even though he says this is possible, I believe in this not going to be your story. 
and kind of a healthy balance between the two. So can I, can I lose myself out of my salvation? I think you can, but I think it's a difficult. Okay, he's a loving God, guys. I mean, he really is involved in our life, and he's doing a powerful, 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 powerful work. And I think you can wiggle out, but man, you have to do a lot of wiggling and a lot of kicking because Jesus really is involved in your life in a powerful, powerful way. And so he paid his own ransom price to himself by the witness of death, which is the shedding of his blood. That in order now, we're free from guilt, and now the power of his presence is in our life. We're free from the agenda of sin. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Through the redemption. It's free for us, but he had to pay a price, which was his blood. Okay, the next picture is the picture of justification. Of course, this deals with what is our legal status. And this image takes us into God's courtroom. Now, some say that the justification means forgiveness. I mean, that's what it means. But really, it means a lot more. It declares that your standing before God is that you are completely righteous. You are completely holy. And I'm going to say it here. You are completely sinless. Sulk. In status. Okay, remember, the soul that sins, that soul may die. Well, how many sins do you got to commit before you die? How many sins do you want? Basically, how many banks do I have to rob before I go to jail? One. Doesn't, I, you know, I've only robbed five. Oh, I'm sorry, you can still go to jail for the five. Okay, it doesn't matter. And so for me to have right standing before God, I have to be declared in some legal way is absolutely acquitted from all wrongdoing and to be completely righteous before God. You are declared, you are declared completely righteous. I know we got to soak that in because that's kind of tough, a little hard. Martin Luther said this. He says that justification is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. It's the principal doctrine. Why would it be the principal doctrine? Because really, if you don't got this down, you're, you're not going to be able to move forward. Yeah. The devil will destroy you. Yeah. That somehow God rejects you. Somehow you, you might be in, you might be out. You know, people don't like to, to see God as, um, a lot of people don't like this thing because they don't like to see God as a judge. They don't like the courtroom thing. They thought maybe Paul had a kind of forensic problem. He was, he was just had, always took us to legal issues all the time and, he just kind of saw it that way. But well, the problem is you start criticizing Paul, you're messing around with apostolic authority because Paul was an apostle that the other apostles recognized. He wrote one half of the New Testament. So to start messing with Paul is messing with the whole authority of Christianity. And so we're, we have legal terms. God is not just Father. Okay, God is also judge. God is not just good. God is also severe because he hates evil. Okay, so God is all these things. He's not just one trumping the other. He's all these things, and so we need to see that. But in that, you know, we, within that, we need to understand that in the Old Testament, God said about the Messiah in Isaiah 53, verse 11, he said, he will justify many. He will justify many. So it's not a new concept by Paul. And, and, and Jesus used the word justify. Remember the parable in Luke 18 of the publican and the Pharisee? Pharisee's bragging about his fasting, bragging about his tithing. And the, and the publican beats his chest. He says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said the publican, publican went home justified. Justified. So it's something that God declares in his courtroom about you and I. 
It says, I justify you. I declare you completely righteous. Now, this, this work that God does in my life, where I get this declaration, is a work called grace, where God works in me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. But by grace. You're not really saved through faith. You're saved by grace. Faith is the tool to open it up. Faith would be the eye that sees it. Faith would be the hand that grabs it. Faith would be the mouth that drinks from it. But it is grace that saves you. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of, your, not of, yours, not of works, lest any man should boast. So what I am, be, what I am and what I'm becoming is always a complete work of God. Yeah. What you are and what you're becoming is all a work of God. I was telling the church this morning, if I preach a good grace message and I preach a good gospel message, you should walk out of here feeling extremely refreshed. It's like, you, it's like you've been told to put the oars into the boat, lift up the sail, <coughs> let the wind and the current take you. And you're just resting in the work of God. Now, don't worry. God will, he'll work you. You know, it was like Pete was reminding me like four weeks ago. I said, you don't have to look for suffering to suffer. I didn't realize what we were going to face. Suffering will find you, okay? Well, grace will find you too. So it's not like you're going to live a loose life. Grace is going to make you holy. So grace works in the complete work of God. So what happens is the moment you believe, God says you are absolutely righteous. Here's another thing. God says you're absolutely a saint or a holy one. Now, I remember when Sue and I got married. We came out of a Catholic background. We uh, got married, took a one-week honeymoon, and went up to the University of Washington, and she was finishing her, uh, her, her uh, undergraduate work. I was starting my postgraduate work. And uh, we, were in a, we took a class together. Before starting a class, I was reading my devotions on my Bible. You know, we were married about a week and a half, you know, two weeks, and I... I was reading out of Philippians where it says to all the saints and the deacons and the bishops at Philippi. And I said, you know, Sue, you're a saint. Well, growing up Catholic, you have to really earn your way to sainthood. I mean, very few Catholics ever become a saint, okay? You have to, like, you know, die a martyr, you know, crawl on your knees around the world, you know, feed the poor with everything you got, give up all your first-class seats, man. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, to be a saint, okay? You really didn't kind of ride to sainthood in that story, but... But it was a good story, a good conviction. But, uh, but, uh, but you know, I said to that, Sue, Sue goes, you got to be kidding me. I'm not a saint. Said, it says it right here. You're, you're, I'm a saint. Now, true, God declares me holy. He, he, he declares me righteous. But am I righteous in all my attitudes and habits? Well, the answer is no. Okay, am I holy in everything that I do? No. So the whole process of grace is to get me to become what God says I am. Okay, we, we love that song, I am who you say I am. That's true, but I don't always act like I say I am. And I got to become who God says I am. And there was a story of Alexander the Great had a soldier deserted in battle brought before him. The guy's trembling. He's standing before the great conqueror, Alexander the Great. He said, son, what is your name? My name is Alexander. He says, what is your name? My, my, my name is Alexander. What is your name? He goes, my name is Alexander. And he grabs him. And he says, either change your behavior or change your name. Okay. So, <laughs> I think God does that with us sometimes. Okay, yeah, yeah. 
Who are you? I'm justified saying. I'm a justified one. Well, you know, change your behavior. Change your name. Okay, I'm, you've got to become what I say you are. But, it's, but, but I've declared this status first. It's the complete work of God in my life. Oh, come on. Just, just like that, I'm justified. Just like that, I'm declared righteous. Yeah, what about the thief on the cross? What did he do to get into heaven? He didn't even have the opportunity to do anything. He just believed upon the Son of God. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says, this day you'll join me. What did he do? He believed. What do you do? You believe. And the moment you believe, something happens. There's something that God does in your life. I don't know if Netflix still has this, but there's an hour, maybe an hour and a half documentary on Billy Graham. You should watch it. It's powerful. And they show all his crusades around the world. And the one thing you notice, tears. And what part of the world it does, it doesn't matter. Tears coming down people's faces because he declared that you can come forward and become not guilty before God. What a beautiful thing we're involved in. What a beautiful thing Jesus did for us on the cross tonight. The last image, and then we'll bring this home. Reconciliation. What does this all mean relationally? It's not just something he did on the cross that we need to focus on. This is not just a status, and it's not just a, 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 you know, a deliverance. This is about relationship, as I said. Prior to the cross, this is what life looked like relationally with us and God. God's wrath, God's anger against evil kept him away from us. Our sins kept us away from him. Now, God's wrath was forced upon him by our choice. Our separation and alienation was our choice. He was forced into it. We chose our way out of it. But reconciliation means bringing two enemies together. It's not like bringing two buddies together. If I brought Rick together with Ben, I reconciled them. It doesn't mean they were best buddies and feeling good about each other. They were hurt and angry and whatever it was with each other. And I'm bringing two enemies together to become friends. And, this, and the picture is strong. It's enemies becoming friends. Enemies becoming friends. And now we become the friend of God. And so we hide from God, as I said, because of our agenda and our shame, or maybe it's both. And, and, uh, but God wants us to, to come near to him. God wants us to uh, experience his presence. God wants us to be adopted into his family. You know, what are you doing out here looking in? Come on in. We'll give you a primary seat. And this is Reconciliation. So I am saved from wrath. I'm saved from the guilt and the, the power of sin. I am given a legal status, but I'm brought into a relationship with God. Salvation is not a hand raised. It's not a sinner's prayer. Salvation is that I come into a relationship with God. If relationship doesn't take place, if someone's walking around saying, I'm justified, but I don't pursue my relationship with God, there's something wrong with your justification. You know, I've been, I've been set free from guilt. Well, if you're not pursuing God, there's something wrong in your relationship. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm got my, God's anger towards me has been satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus, but if you don't make it into relationship, what does that mean? It's about relationship. And relationship is also not just vertical, but it's also horizontal. If God has reconciled me, who was an enemy, then I must be reconciled to those in the body of Christ and those in the world who I'm separated from. 
Christian can't have walls, and a Christian can't be alienated from anybody. They always have to have a heart of reconciliation. Yeah. I've watched my wife here the last few years build a bridge to a family member who absolutely abused her. And I watched her continue to take shots and take hits, and I was very angry as a husband about it. But in the end of the day, her efforts of love have really won the day. And she's making progress and reconciling that person to her. You know, we, we're not allowed to build walls. If he's reconciled us to him, we must be reconciled to one another. And the same thing needs to take place. We need to be ambassadors of reconciliation. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That God wants a relationship with you. That's what we're really telling people. God just wants a relationship with you. Now, they got all this junk, shame, their agenda, and their false concepts of an angry, weird God to keep them back. But the fact is, we still got to declare to them, he still wants a relationship with you. You know, we give up on people too fast, don't we? George Mueller prayed for a man his whole life. And George Mueller died. The guy never got saved. At George Mueller's funeral, that man gave his life to Christ. Okay, we, we, we committed the ministry of reconciliation. He's able to save us, it says in, in Hebrews 7.25. Save us, in, in the old King James Version, to the uttermost. Someone said to the guttermost. And he is able to completely save us and go after people. We need to believe that. Amen? So this is what we're going to do. Andrew's going to come up and sing the old rugged cross. We're going to sing that. And the emblems of communion are going to be passed out to you. We're going to take them together and just close the service. I want you to re- reflect upon that God stepped to the plate to satisfy his own anger, propitiation. That God paid the ransom price. Blood spilled as a witness of death to free you from guilt and to free you from the slavery of sin. That God, that God has declared you in his court of law with a gavel going down, I declare you completely righteous before God. I don't care if you read the Bible a hundred times between now and the time you go to heaven. I don't care what you do. You're, you're going to get into heaven not on your own merits, but on the merits of Christ. That you will never be more righteous before God than you are right now. Thank God. And then chorus relationship. That's all means so that you can, be, you can draw near to him. Grow deeper with him. Live in his presence. Become the son and daughter God's called you to be. Think about this.